0: Have you had a busy week in the market? Not had time to catch up with the latest trends? Well, welcome to cloud Nighting, our suite of podcasts where we bring you the neater information on deals, documentation, ESG, and we deep dive into the themes showing up in the high-yield leverage loans and restructuring spaces. We also have our U.S. podcast, which features discussions with members of the North American American market with U.S. editor Will Cage Smith, So be sure to check in every second Thursday for that. I'm Catherine Hidalgo, a loans reporter at Ninefin, and I'll be your host for today when we'll be looking at what to expect from a reopening market, portability in loans, and new SEC-mandated climate disclosures. But first, the Levfin Wrap. As we discuss later on in the podcast, it appears the market has... Somewhat reopened in the bond world, we have Fortescue Metals Group with two tranches of senior unsecured notes, one of 800 million US dollars and the other of 700 million US dollars, as well as Sealed Air with a 425 million US dollar senior unsecured notes. In loans, there's been an absolute spate of issuance. Closing tomorrow, MKS Instruments has a 3.81 billion USD tranche alongside a 400 million euro tranche. Element Materials Technology will be issuing 1.425 billion US dollar equivalent tranche with a, a, a tranche of that in euros. Delivery Hero has put out a 300 million euro tranche alongside an 825 million euro tranche. While Clinogen is out with 492 million euros alongside a 200 million sterling tranche, and Cooper Group uh, is out with a 480 million euro tranche. Next up, we have the Covenant Close Up. And with me today, I have Brian Deering, our Senior Covenant Analyst. Thanks for being with us today, Brian.
1: Thanks for having me on, Kat.
0: And we have Alice Hollian, a legal analyst. Lovely to be back. So today we're gonna be doing a recap on portability. So avid listeners of Cloud9fin will know that we have covered portability before, but today we're gonna be discussing the difference between portability on loans and bonds. And later on in the segment, Brian and Alice will kindly be doing a quick red flag review for us. So I'll hand it over to you, Brian.
1: Thanks, Kat. Yeah, she said, so we already talked about this in September 2021, but I think to set the stage for this uh, piece, we'll I'll just quickly recap what portability is. So functionally, what it does is it allows you to have a change of control and avoid the 101 put right that lenders have to require a company to either repay a loan or... Back the bonds um, in the event of a change of control. Right, so change of control avoidance comes in two forms. The first is ratings-based and the second is leverage-based. And then a further piece of background that I want to give is the idea that in loans traditionally, change of control would only occur in the case where a controller at the time of the loan lost control. Whereas in the situation where we're talking about portability, we're using the modern sense of change of control, which comes from bonds, which is someone has taken control of a company. So they've taken control of 50, or more of the voting stock, for example. I think typically portability is much more rare in loans than it is in bonds. And in 2021, we saw that only 6% of leveraged loans um, feature the concept, but it seems to be increasing. And in January 2022, before the markets closed, um, it was in about 18 or so percent of the leveraged loans that we were able to review. So why do we actually care about this? Um, we care because the idea of uh, if there's a change of control is that the bondholders or the, lo- the lenders are able to ensure that they have the right to make a decision on staying in the investment or not based on who the new owner will be. And the evolution of including portability has come along because people are saying, well, if the company is doing very well and they're meeting a certain leverage ratio or ratings, why should they need to completely reset the capital structure um, and incur all of those transaction costs? Um, And so I think that's really the driving factor behind this, or at least the argument that sponsors are making. And, you know, it can be uh, quite a reasonable argument. But um, now I'm going to turn it over to Alice, who's going to talk about the differences between uh, bonds and loans in portability and some of the trends that we're seeing.
2: So as Brian said, in order to port bonds, a company would typically have to meet a certain leverage ratio test. And it is customary for the company to only to be allowed to port the bonds once. Although, as Brian will um, speak later, we have seen a few bonds where portability is not limited to one use. Um, And additionally, a a few deals do feature a leverage-based step down in their portability after a certain time period, uh, which can reflect the expected business performance improvement. So essentially, for bonds, the company... Um, have to meet one or two conditions in order to port the capital structure. However, in in leveraged loans, portability tends to be subject to satisfying more than um, just those conditions. And I'll go through those one by one now. As with portability in bonds, in loans, it is typically limited, again, to to single use. Um, And again, portability is subject to meeting a leverage test. Um, Of the loan deals we have reviewed and managed to obtain the the opening metrics, at least four deals had their portability leverage ratio set higher than their opening leverage ratio, um, and additionally four had it set equal to their opening leverage ratio, and none had set it below. So these conditions are identical to the portability conditions in, in bonds. On top of these conditions, to port loans... There normally has to be no ongoing payment or insolvency event of default. Um, and, they're also, and they also have to meet certain KYC requirements. So the company must provide lenders with the identity of the buyer um, and any KYC information that might be requested um, by the lenders. Um, the ability to port is also time bound. So the sale of the transaction must occur within a certain time period following the, the financing closing and we've seen this set at about 24 months to, to 36 months. Additionally the buyer must provide sufficient equity financing to meet that equity to capitalization test um, again typically set between 30 and 35 percent. This demonstrates that the, the buyer essentially has sufficient skin in the game. And the last condition, the acquirer must be on a pre-approved list or fall within certain parameters. The conditions might stipulate the industry of the acquirer or a minimum quantity of assets held by such acquirer or that the acquirer must not be subject to um, sanction restrictions. And this just ensures that the debt is ported only to acquirers of sort of a similar nature and creditworthiness as the existing um, holder. Or sponsor and seemingly these conditions offer greater protection um, for for lenders in loans but there is a question over whether portability in in loans is becoming more bond-like as several recent deals lack um some or all of the conditions mentioned in fact one deal um, had portability subject to all the conditions except a, a leverage test which is is, is quite unique um, On the bright side, there has been some successful pushback. We know that it was removed in at least one deal this year. Um, But it does remain um, to be seen whether the inclusion of portability in leverage loans can actually be considered a trend. And regardless of of this, um, it's definitely one for lenders to ensure that the scope of the portability provisions are drawn relatively narrowly, if possible. Uh, I'll pass over to Brian who, to speak about some of the the general developments surrounding portability.
1: Yeah, thanks, Alice. So I'm just going to talk about a few of the general red flags and what you know, sort of what to watch out for um, when you're looking at a transaction that has portability in it. Firstly, and this was sort of referenced earlier, and it's a bit obvious, but sometimes the we, we're actually seeing that the the leverage ratio, for example, is set just at or around or even above the opening leverage, meaning that day one, there is capacity to use the portability function or perhaps even incur additional debt and still have portability available. So it's important to keep an eye on that, and it's something we always flag on our quick takes. Um, Another point is round-tripping, and this is probably one of the most important. And the idea here is if you have a leverage ratio and there are ways for you to manipulate or change that leverage ratio, That you hit the portability requirements, um, you want to make sure that that's not being manipulated in a way that is um, kind of against the interest of the um, the lenders uh, and done in a way that they wouldn't expect. So, for example, you could have an equity injection from a sponsor such that the ratio goes down, but then and then you have the uh, portability transaction occur. And then immediately thereafter, you use some kind of RP capacity to send the to dividend the money back out. And functionally, nothing has changed for the company, but they were able to meet the portability ratio at the point in time for the transaction. And so there are a few ways that people are protecting against this. And one of them, for example, and this is a bit of an older concept, is just to reset the buildup basket. So typically the way you would use that money is you would have an equity contribution. Then that would build up your, um, you know, your builder basket. We often call it the CNI builder basket, but there are other components to it, such as um, cash injections coming in. And then you would have met your ratio. And then later on, you could simply use that capacity to dividend the money back out. But the point of this is it doesn't actually block other RP capacity um, for being used to make that exact same transaction happen. So there's an excluded amounts concept, which is used to ensure that amounts received for the purpose of or in contemplation of uh, The avoidance of a change of control event are not allowed to be dividend back out. So cash could come in, lower the ratio, and allow you to use portability, but that cash can't then just be sent back out in the form of an RP. Um, And I think this makes sense, and and it's functionality that people wouldn't um, be upset about because cash has come into the group. So fine, you can meet your ratio. Um, Another thing I want to just quickly touch on, uh, and this is in in the um, situations where there isn't um, round tripping protection is it's important to be aware of the gross versus net ratio calculations that occur. So if a, if a ratio is calculated on a gross basis and cash comes in, you would need to actually use that cash, pay down debt, and then be able to reincur the debt to be able to actually make the restricted payment after, right? Because um, you, can't simply, you can't simply have the cash on the balance sheet. The debt needs to go down for a gross ratio to, to be lowered. But if it's net, for example, you could simply inject some cash, meet your ratio, and send the cash back out. It's quite an easy transaction. So while gross is a little bit better, perhaps, uh, it's still not perfect. And so we would suggest that people um, look out for some of the protections that I've discussed. There are just a few more things that I wanted to talk about. And one is no worse. Um, And sometimes you'll see this uh, in a lot of ratio calculations. But if you see this in portability, what it means is... The uh, portability function is available if you meet a certain ratio test or if the ratio is no worse pro forma for the transaction. And that means it's sort of irrelevant what the ratio is, so it could be much higher um, than the anticipated portability level that was set at the time of the, the, the issuance of the loan or the bond, and you're still able to actually access portability. And this is probably undercutting some of the commercial aspects that we discussed earlier, which is if the business is doing fine, then you're probably okay with this. Um, so it's definitely something to look out for. Um, and then the last thing to point out is just what date matters. So typically, um, it's, it's up to the company or the sponsor to choose the point in time at which they're actually um, calculating their ratio for purposes of portability. And this allows them enormous flexibility to um, choose a time where they've committed um, or even made a soft commitment um, for the person to uh, have a change of control, um, And then a lot can change uh, between that point in time and when they actually have the change of control of the transaction goes through. So again, whenever we have these kind of um, amorphous concepts, it just allows for people to maybe potentially uh, abuse it, but maybe not, I'm not sure.
0: Next up we have Please Raise Responsibly, our ESG segment. And with me today, I have ESG analyst Sam Stevens. Thanks for being with us today, Sam.
3: Thank you, Kat. Absolute pleasure.
0: So today we're going to be talking about a new proposal for climate disclosures out from the world's largest economy, America, uh, from the SEC. So tell us, Sam, why is this one interesting?
3: So the SEC have released a proposal uh, on their website along with a press release uh, that builds upon the task force for climate-related financial disclosures. And it's a 510-page proposal for both foreign and uh, US-based companies that file certain uh, SEC filing uh, obligations. And it's looking at various elements of climate risk and and climate change activities at companies. Um, It is a very controversial proposal in the sense that it's looking at more than some people would be comfortable with, uh, depending on what their job is and where they are in the market. But there are some some usual and and, and these days quite standard requirements in this proposal, um, as it is built on that TCFD uh, disclosure framework. So oversight of climate change at board and executive level, short medium, and long term risks identified at the business and financial position level. And then, of course, present or likely risks to to the filers, strategies, business model and outlook of the company as a whole. These things are quite standard these days. Um, We've got TCFD uh, requirements uh, uh, filed by the uh, Financial Conduct Authority in the UK. Um, So we're already seeing this rolled out in the UK. And the TCFD is a very well-known framework anyway. However, there are a couple of key and very significant points of this proposal which are causing a, a lot of fanfare uh, in the mar- in the markets in the US and, and, and worldwide actually being the largest economy. So scope one and two emissions are to be reported and emissions intensity of these as well. This is quite significant because not all companies in the US or worldwide actually file their scope one and two emissions and intensity. In fact a quarter of the largest companies don't do this and the figure is of course a lot worse in high yield um, where, you know those sorts of disclosures aren't usually necessary so that's a big thing for us if if you know a large amount of our nine fin companies have to do that and then of course those scope one and two emissions need to be audited as the SEC is saying so large filers uh, with a float of 700 million or more will have to do that another huge part of his proposal that's caused a lot of a lot of debate is that scope-free emissions if they are material or if they're included in climate targets need to be disclosed as well. And this has led to, to some already uh, some debate. So there's been a challenge um, made by 16 state attorneys who sent a letter to the SEC stating they will fight throughout the rulemaking process and in the courts against these this entire climate disclosure proposal. And the argument is that Though there are rules against defrauding through the sale of securities, these don't necessarily apply to climate change. Um, And they they do look at scope three as one of those those areas of of disclosure that are more of an estimate as well. So there may also be additional claims against this proposal based on scope three emissions not being a true accurate figure for any company. It's almost impossible to get a precise figure about what uh, scope free emissions are so that's one of the the more interesting parts of this proposal and one more thing that that we think investors might be interested in regarding this proposal is that climate related targets need to be defined in more detail and of course we've seen over the years especially we i mean if you've looked at the esg quick takes that we do carbon neutrality and, and carbon net zero tend to be conflated and details about these are usually hard to come by. The SEC are saying, well, now you need to tell us what are the activities included in your climate targets? What's the time horizon? What methods are you going to use to fulfill the targets? And very, very importantly, are you going to use offsets or renewable energy certificates to to meet these targets? And that's significant because... As as our quick takes have, have have revealed over the years, that these these targets usually rely on offsets, and and a company claiming to be net zero doesn't always do that. So although a lot of companies are honest, and and you know, sustainability reports tend to give these information if a company is quite mature in its climate change target setting, we do still see a little bit of inconsistency, and this will definitely clear things up there.
0: Next up, we have our deep discussion. And today, we're going to be talking about the nature of the reopening market. I have with me here senior reporter Owen Sanderson. Thanks for being with us today, Owen.
4: Uh, always a pleasure, Kat. Very happy to be here.
0: And the lovely Mikhail Skippala, a fellow loans reporter. Thanks for being with us today, Mikhail.
4: Pleasure to be here.
0: So we've had some tentative opening with a few uh, add-ons for example barons a couple of weeks ago um we've definitely been hearing about lots of early birds um and we're seeing some deals come into market at a faster pace it's certainly been heftier on the leverage loan side uh Mika what have you been seeing so far
5: So we have seen a gradual reopening of the market um with so far a few add-ons, Ion Trading actually just only issued a notice last Friday that they're closing an add-on to support an acquisition. And um, some of the existing lenders have not been even invited to participate. So we have seen little steps of market reopening in Europe. And we have the first uh, European issuer coming back. It's German um network of uh, ophthalmological clinics, Vionet. So it's the it's a deal that was the last deal trying to get through um before the the volatility because of the Russian invasion of Ukraine wobbled the markets. So Vionet came back, which is interesting with now an uplift on the pricing and also softening on the terms, which is not as surprising um to us because we were already reporting that the documentation has been fairly aggressive and lenders had a laundry list of demands with the initial deal so it was quite expected that if the the deal relaunches um those demands were already be taken into account and that's what um we are seeing with the relaunch so the capital structure stayed the same and um essentially um Vionet is trying to price on a little bit of a premium because we see a market reprice following the the volatility of the past weeks. What's also interesting is is MKS coming back to the market. Um, as we spoke to the lenders, um, the tech company is was raising initially financing in October um, to fund acquisition of Atotech and because that acquisition wasn't clear by the regulator. Um, they are they're in the market with a new loan, but it's essentially of replacing of a canceled loan or loans that was not truly funded with the margin because due to a ticking fee, um, the initial deal has not yet been paying margin because there was a ticking fee, as as it always with uh, with uh, deals, their funding acquisitions, and since the acquisition wasn't cleared, lenders spent months essentially burning a hole in their pocket because they were not getting the margin. Um, and to to sweeten that, now um, MKS is coming with the with the uplift on both the dollar and the year tranches, um, paying more and offering a ticking fee that's allocated on the day. So it's a full margin allocation on the, the day that the loans are allocated to the lenders, which is, which is quite interesting. And um, there's a promise that they're going to close now the ac- acquisition in a month. And they're only facing one last obstacle by the Chinese regulator that are very confident to that. that there's not going to be a problem anymore. Um, um, therefore, lenders, supposed to get the benefit of the margin from the start but it's quite interesting that if they still fail to make the acquisition um they postpone it until like september um and therefore it could still become a non-margin deal at this point no one wants to make the same mistake twice so um i think lenders are quite comfortable that the acquisition will close um but it is it's quite an interesting to watch market practice, that's usually 99% happening the way that people are used to happen to not actually. Question is if really this new t- ticking fee really does change anything, if it's all still relies of if the acquisition will be closed or not. So it's a little bit of an innovation with um, the new deals we're seeing. But most of the time, it seems like market is pretty open and lenders are willing to play the the, especially the credits that um, they know that held firm during the recent market volatility. So um, we only changes we're seeing so far is that uh, there's a little bit of a premium and OID went down just to compensate from that. But um, it seems fairly soon it could be a business as usual. And we're hearing a lot of deals are being pre-sounded and there's been a lot of big LBOs waiting to happen post Easter so... Um, it will be very interesting to see what the demand will be when actually the truly big deals arrive and how many actually of them will launch post-Easter.
0: Uh, I think when you think about a reopening market, you usually assume that the ANSIA investors or most investors will focus on those safest of the safe assets. And when you look at the kind of credits that we've got in the market now, you assume, uh, you know, you, you see things like the manufacturer of measuring and testing and navigating control equipment with MKS and, uh, you know, element materials as a laboratory's business, you know, materials testing, clinogens, pharmaceuticals. You do feel like they're sort of middle of the fairway credits and I've had buy-siders tell me that the Uh, that the credits that they're seeing in early bird are all kind of the safest of the safe uh, assets. What do you think of the quality of the credits that we're seeing, Owen?
4: I think I might dispute the safest of the safe um, to some extent. Uh, Delivery Hero is, in my view, one of the most interesting names in the market right now. Um, The Euro part of that um, financing has been pre-placed, probably with a a credit fund or direct lender uh, type money um, but the, the dollars is in syndication and that's a business with no free operating cash flow that's a business with negative EBITDA and um, so I wouldn't say it's down the middle of the fairway this is quite, quite risky flexible.
0: yeah <laughs> oh, exciting. so do you think it will get some good uptake then in that case or do you think it's too risky for the market?
4: I think the dynamics around these high growth tech firms are quite different to what we see in uh, the classical corporate LBO. Um, There's a big equity cushion behind it. I think pre-announcement Delivery Hero had something like a 12 billion market cap, so um, that clearly signals they've got access to the equity markets and is this company with a 12 billion market cap going to default off the back of a 1 billion TLB? I guess probably not. Um, at least that'll be the pitch to investors. My you, the stock has declined a lot this year in line with the broader tech sector. But I think over the past several years, um, we've heard a consistent appetite for tech, um, particularly in Europe, which tends to be a little bit less well served, um, particularly European names. So actually I think there there will be decent appetite for people that are able to look beyond the um strange factor of missing EBITDA.
0: So from what Mikhail was saying, anyone that hoped that we might get some kind of covenant improvement uh, out of this primary pause um, will have had their hopes dashed. It looks like covenants will be just as loose as they were before, though I do understand um, Clinagen's docs uh, were fairly reasonable, but otherwise uh, still in line with uh, what we've been seeing in the past few years in the market. On the side of pricing, however, we might hope for a little bit more. I spoke to a PM who said that margins would need to be at least uh, a four-handle, maybe in the region of 450 to 475 for a single B. We're also seeing some juicier OIDs around the 98 level. Where do you think we're going to see pricing open?
4: I think the right way to open up a market is to be generous in the, at the outset. I don't think um, managers uh, on the CLO side or loan investors generally are going to want to see anything um, without at least a four handle on it. Um, so I think we'll be, we'll be in the high fours somewhere um, for, for the classical down, down the fairway type deal. There's quite a good technical bid because of the strong CLO issuance that kind of kept kept printing through February. All those deals are now trying to trying to ramp furiously. So there's, um, yeah, quite quite a decent technical set of demand uh, that's been pushing up secondary prices. So um, I think start high fours, but things might come in quite quickly. If you look at markets that are already open, like um, investment grade or, or asset bank markets, then now things are really hotting up and and deals printing at quite a rapid clip.
0: I'm afraid that's all we have time for today on Cloud9fin. Many thanks to Brian, Alice, Sam and Mikkel, Owen and of course to you too, listener. Tune in for a US-Europe crossover edition next week and the European pod the week after. And in the meantime, don't forget to subscribe on Spotify, Apple Music, Amazon Music and Google Podcasts.